If you have your Bibles, take them and turn them to Jonah. And as you're turning there, I want to ask if you've ever heard the phrase, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. The easy way or the hard way, I think about a bad guy locked up in a house. He's locked the door. He's hiding in. The cops come. They're knocking on the door. The bad guy's listening. He's like, I'm not letting you in. And the cop might say something like, well, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. What does that mean? The easy way would be for the bad guy to go unlock the door, let the cops in, and kind of give up, right? But the hard way would be the cops kicking that door down. They're getting in no matter what. The point is, is that when you ask, do you want it the easy way or the hard way, implied is this is going to happen no matter what. So you can make it easy on yourself or you can make it difficult on yourself. Last week, we saw Jonah in verses 1 through 3. The word came and Jonah fled. Right, That was my two points. The word came and Jonah fled. And Jonah must have thought that the choice set before him was either God is going to get his way or I'm going to get my way. That's what he must have thought the choices were. But that wasn't the choice, was it? The choice was, do you want it the easy way or the hard way? Because what we can learn from this passage we're going to study today is that God is going to get his way. God's going to get his way. So your choice is either, and Jonah's choice is either, is it going to be the easy way or the hard way? So we're going to walk through this story together and see what we can learn from a bad trip. Bad trip Jonah takes here. Let's see what we can learn. Look at verse 4. But the Lord. Last week in verse 3, it started, you know, the word came to Jonah in verse 2. Then verse 3, it says, but Jonah, which is sad. The word came, but Jonah went the opposite way, if you remembered. So verse 4, uh, but Jonah, now we get in verse 4, but the Lord. So Jonah made his choice the hard way, and now but the Lord. Jonah does this by buying a ticket for a ship heading to Tarshish. I'm glad I don't have to say that word much in this sermon, Tarshish. But he buys a ticket, but this is not going to work because God responds to Jonah's rejection and fleeing of his word and presence. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the Lord so that the ship threatened to break up how does God respond by hurling a great wind what a world word and this word hurl it, it comes up several times in this narrative think about this hurling a great wind I think about a fastball from Spencer Strider right 103 miles per hour how, uh, how about the phrase mighty tempest do you see that so he hurls this wind he hurls this mighty tempest this means the word tempest is a violent windy storm you know I feel like it's been an extremely rainy stormy season lately I feel like every other day it's storming bad at the house and if you've been to my house we have about four five six eight silver maples right there in front of them and every single time that wind starts to blow the branches just fall down I mean if you go there's a there's a big huge branch in my yard right now because every single time it storms branches are falling off those silver maples I imagine this storm thrown by the Lord would just completely tear those trees out from the roots you see that there's this huge mighty tempest the Bible's clear 
Notice here, the Lord, that's hard to say, the Lord hurled a great and mighty tempest. This terrible storm came from the Lord. He caused it, he hurled it. That's clear to us, but it's not immediately clear to the sailors in verse 5. Look what it says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So this is how we know how terrible this storm is. This is why I'm saying it would be ripping those silver maples out of the roots. It's because these professional mariners saw storms all the time. Do you understand? Like they would see storms. They wouldn't necessarily freak out over them. But this storm has them afraid. They are fearful. This storm was different. I imagine with that word hurled, it just came upon extremely suddenly. Imagine just a perfectly clear day, nothing really spectacular about it, and then all of a sudden, just boom, this extremely terrible storm is upon them. Imagine how you would feel. The sailors are afraid, they're fearful. Something was definitely going on. Now, while we walk this narrative, I want you to keep this tension in mind because sometimes we forget about the storm. But the whole time we're reading this, this entire passage, the storm's just absolutely going nuts. So keep in your mind, like, the worst storm ever is happening during all these conversations. Um, there, there, there's nothing calm happening, but it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. We'll see that. Um, so what do they do? What do these pagan sailors, these mariners, as the English Standard Version say, what are they doing? Number one, they immediately get to praying. Isn't that interesting? The pagan sailors who don't know God immediately start praying. Look at it. Um, the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. These sailors are not believers. They don't know the Lord. They're pagans. They all have their own personal God, and they, they probably all had their own national God. They, they had many gods. So if there were, um, and it, it says in the text that each called out to his God. Do you see that? Each cried out to his God. So if there were 75 sailors on the boat, we're thinking at least like 150 gods are getting prayed to. Do you see the desperation? I mean, they're just calling out anything they can possibly um, pray to. Um, now, obviously, as we know, not one of those 150 gods could do anything about the situation um, because this storm is coming from the one true God of the Bible. There's no rival here. There's no God that can trump our God. There's no God that can compete against our God. So they're calling out to these 150 gods or so, and it's completely impotent. There's nothing that can be done to this storm because it, it came from God. But they didn't just pray. They immediately got to work as well. So they, they cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Uh, these professional sailors knew what to do. In this narrative, I just want to point this out, you, you kind of see a competence from these men. Um, they don't know the Lord, but they, they, they know, okay, the ship's you know, threatening to break up. Let's take the heavy stuff and let's hurl it into the sea. There's that word again. So what do the unbelieving sailors do? They immediately get to praying and they immediately get to work. Okay? That's the pagan sailors. What is the prophet of the Lord doing? Continue in verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. All right, so the pagan sailors, they're kind of crushing it. They're praying, even though it's to false gods. They're working hard, um, even though it's not going to really do any good. But the prophet of God, he just goes down. Notice that in the text again. He goes into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. All this is going on. Jonah's in bed. It's hard to know uh, whether Jonah... 
was already asleep when the storm began or if he saw the storm and just went to sleep. Some commentators say this sleep shows his depression from fleeing the Lord. Some commentators say it shows his apathy towards the sailor's plight. Uh, All we can really say for sure was he was asleep. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Do you know that feeling, that awful, terrible, terrifying feeling when you wake up and realize you've overslept? A couple years ago, three years ago or so, you know, after 30 years of waking up and getting to Sunday school, I woke up and it was 9.30 on a Sunday morning. Uh, Sunday school starts at 9.15. And I was the youth pastor, okay? And I still to this day have no idea, but I just remember the sense of dread. And just like, and this is no excuse to oversleep Sunday school, by the way. You can't use that. Uh, but it's just like, j- just that terrible sense. But how much more so for Jonah here to wake up to this? Imagine how Jonah would feel. He's rejected God's word. He's fled God's presence. He's gone to sleep at the bottom of the ship of his rebellion. And he wakes up to the captain of the ship. He shakes him. I, okay, I just sense that. He shakes him and says, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. This would be a terrible feeling because no doubt, in my mind, Jonah would have flashbacks to verse 2 where God says, arise and call out against Nineveh. And then he gets woken up by this captain saying, arise and call out to your God. Could you, I mean, that's just a bad way to wake up when you're trying to forget God's word. I'm sure that God's word that Jonah received and rejected continued to ring in his ears even after he got on the ship. So imagine sleeping to avoid the thought of what you've done just to be woken up with the same words you're trying to forget. That's what's happening to Jonah right here. It had to be a terrible feeling. This captain was also no believer in Yahweh. But the captain wakes Jonah up to pray because he thinks... It can't hurt. You know, we got 150 gods we're praying to. If we could add one more, maybe that God could do something about it. That's what he says. Look at the text in verse 6. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So right here, we see the captain begs Jonah to pray to his God for just the chance that he would give a thought to the ship and save them. Like Like a chance to win a lottery. The captain's saying, you know, obviously you're not going to win the lottery, but it's just like, well, I might as well try, right? Um, That's what he's saying, like, you might as well give it a shot. So in your storms in life, do you ever take the chance of prayer? Do you see prayer as worthwhile in the crises of your life? Do you ever think that perhaps God will give a thought to you? You know, because for those of us in Christ, we have the promise of Psalm 139 that we talked about a couple weeks ago that says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. So for those of us in Christ, we know that our God will give a thought to us infinitely so also for those of us in Christ we have the promise of 1 Peter 5 7 which is casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you so if you're in Christ you have the promise of God 
that our God cares about you. And then finally, for those of us in Christ, we have the promise of 1 John 5, 15. It says, And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So we know, based on the promises of God, that our God hears and answers us. So notice here, the captain says, Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So he's just like, there's a chance here that your God can listen, your God can do something about this. So just, just take the chance, take the lottery ticket. But our Bible, our theology teaches us that our God infinitely thinks of us. He deeply cares for us. He always hears us and he promises to answer us. Do you see that? So the captain puts us to shame this morning because he desperately asks for prayer to a God he doesn't know for just the chance that he might hear an answer. And we have a God that we personally do know and we have the infallible promise from him that he will hear us and answer us, but so often we can live prayerless lives, can't we? The captain here says, hey, we're in trouble. You need to pray. Maybe it will work. But for those of us in Christ, we can say, hey, we're in trouble. We can pray and I know it will work. I know our God cares. I know He hears me. I know He knows. I know He's promised to answer. Going on in verses 7 and 8. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? The sailors know something is up. They don't think this is just a random storm. They don't think this is just nature. But they know what they say is this evil has come upon us. This terrible thing has come upon us. They know this is supernatural. With their worldview, um, they would have no problem believing this. The supernatural is very natural to them. And they even believe that this storm is due to someone on the ship. You see, somebody here is responsible is what they're saying. So what do they do? They cast lots. Now, lots basically think dice, and um, there would be light sides and, and dark sides. And so imagine what they would do is they would, they would go up to somebody, and they would roll the dice, and if it turned up two, two black, two dark sides, um, that would be no. That's not the person. If they rolled it again, and it was a light and a dark, it would be try again. Okay? And if it was two lights, it would be that's the person, that's a yes. So that's what they do. And, and imagine the storm's absolutely raging. Like it's going crazy, and they're going around to the whole crew going, all right, let's try Heather, let's see how it goes. And they're, and they're dropping the dice. And they go, and they go, and they go, and they go, and eventually it singles out Jonah. And this just seems so random, right? A roll of the dice revealed that Jonah was the one, correctly revealed Jonah was the one, on whose account this evil had come upon them. And you might say, if you, if you were there, even if you're reading the story here, you might say something like, what are the chances? I think about Saul in 1 Samuel 9 looking for some donkeys, and eventually they say, well, you should go ask the seer about it. And then he gets to the seer who's Samuel, and Samuel eventually anoints him as king. He says, That's, you're exactly who I was looking for. And you might think, what are the chances? Or uh, you might think about a couple of weeks ago when I was praying 
for an opportunity for this church to, to reach um, students on UT's campus. Like, we're not that far from UT. Uh, obviously, you know, the gospel needs to be heard on UT's campus. And then a couple days later, um, BCM, Baptist Collegiate Ministries, reaches out to me and say, hey, do you have an opening um, in your parsonage? We have a college missionary who's looking for a place to stay. And the date they asked for is basically right when ours opened up for the fall. Didn't have anybody. And you might say, what are the chances? They're about to move in. They might have moved in this weekend or they're about to. A, a BCM missionary is going to be living with us this fall. Uh, what are the chances? How random? Remember, in the biblical worldview, there is not random chance. But there is the providence of God. The providence of God is that God is completely in charge of his world. That God is just as much involved um, in the world right now as he was at creation. It wasn't like we don't believe in a God who like set things going and then, and then just walked away from it. But we believe in a God who's intimately involved in his creation. Uh, we, believe that, we believe in a God um, in every single detail, big or small, who sees to it to make sure that all things work out according to his plan. Where do we see this in the scriptures? Do we see it anywhere? God is in control of the universe, it says. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. We see God's providence in the world where in Psalm 104, 14 it says, You cause the grass to grow. You see that? God is in control of the kingdoms. He's in, he's in the heavens. He rules over all. But also He causes the grass to grow. Your, your grass doesn't just grow because of the rain. It grows because of the providence of God. And plants for man to cultivate that He may bring forth fruit from the earth. We also see God's providence over the animals. Where it says in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. Do you see that truth? Not one single sparrow dies apart from God. That's the providence of God, his control, his, his seeing to every single little detail. We see that God, God's providence is over the nations. Psalm twenty two twenty eight says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Even specifically, God is sovereign and in control over kings. This should be encouraging to you. Proverbs 21.1 that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We see God is provident. His providence even extends over the small, tiny details of our lives, as we saw in Psalm 139.16 that says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. We see God, God's providence extends to our days that haven't even happened yet. Finally, we see God is sovereign and in control of the lot. Proverbs 16.33 the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The roll of the dice, God's in control of. The Bible is clear, God is in control of everything. The lot fell on Jonah, not out of random chance, but because the decision of the lot was determined by the Lord. He's in full control. Here's what we see in this narrative of the mighty storm, this enormous storm threatened to break up a ship. He's also in control of the tiny lot that he determined to fall upon Jonah. We see God's providence so clearly in this story. So Jonah is exposed, and the interview begins. 
the unbelieving pagan sailors ask five questions in verse 8. Now this was nothing compared to what the search team put me through, but here's, here's five questions they ask in verse 8. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? This kind of reminds me of the open doors we've been praying for. You know, Colossians 4.3, pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. This is an open door. I mean, how much more open can it get? They're like, tell us what this is about. Tell us who you serve. Tell us what your job is. Tell us what you're about. I mean, Jonah, he's rejected the mission before um, last week. But this, I mean, he's kind of got, he's, he's basically got to walk through this one and tell him what's up. So here's an ironic sermon in verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This confession from Jonah shows that the Lord is perfectly suited to solve their situation because he is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Why is this perfectly suited? Number one, God is the God of heaven, meaning he is high and lifted up. He is sovereign and in control. He is not merely the God of Israel. Remember, everybody else has their national gods, their personal gods. Jonah's saying, I'm not serving a God like that. I'm serving the God of heaven. He is the God of gods. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so Jonah is asserting the transcendence and superiority of his God above all other gods. That's what we believe in. The biblical God is not one among many. He is not just our God, but he is the God of the universe. Also along with that, Jonah confesses that God is the creator. You see that? Who made? I I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, That's a beautiful truth about God, that he is our creator. We talked about it a couple weeks ago in Psalm 139, that God created you. But here, Jonah points to the fact that God created the world, specifically that God created the sea and the dry land, which would be absolutely music to the sailors' ears, right? Because the sea was their main problem, and the dry land was where they wanted to be. You see that? So it's kind of like, okay, this God made the sea and the dry land. This is who we need to go to. Now, based on verse 10, we're going to read this here in a second. Um, At the bottom of verse 10 it says, For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we need to give Jonah credit here for giving them the full, complete story. It seems like he told them, you know, what was up with him. Like, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He told them that. And we can also give Jonah credit for being theologically correct. Uh, You know, saying, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So it's honest. It's theologically correct. But is it true of Jonah that he fears the Lord? He told him the full story. He's right theologically. He has the right answers. But he says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Does Jonah really fear the Lord? The Lord he is currently fleeing from? I think Jonah here has the right answers. But not a true fear of God in his heart. He knows what he's supposed to say, but it's not really true of him deep down. What Jonah says and what Jonah really believes and what he really does, they're completely at odds with one another. I think about James 1.22 that says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We see Jonah kind of deceiving himself here, saying, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, while he's at the bottom of a ship fleeing God's word, fleeing God's presence. So, quick question, are you a Christian in name only? Do you look like Jonah here? Because you know that it's possible to claim 
you're a Christian, but it not be true of you. That's 1,000% possible. It's probably one of the most dangerous things here in Blount County. Just to say, I'm a Christian and I fear the Lord, but actually have no true fear of the Lord in your heart. I'm afraid that's probably true, and it's extremely dangerous for some people in this room that you have, you know, you you have the right theological confession, but you have no true fear of God. You've never been born again. You've never truly repented of your sins, and you can see, um, you can you can tell that based on whether or not your your confession matches your life whatsoever. Notice that even right now in this confession, Jonah does not pray, nor does he ever pray. So the unbelieving sailors and the captain, they desperately pray. They seek after their gods. They even seek the help of Jonah's God, but Jonah never does. So he says, I fear the Lord, but he doesn't pray. So verses 10 through 11, um, the sailors look for a fix. The men were exceedingly afraid and said, what is this that you have done? Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The unbelieving sailors respond to Jonah's confession in the proper way. They feared the Lord. It says they were exceedingly afraid. This is the proper response to a confrontation with the Lord. Um, Through the storm, through this mighty tempest, this terrifying Storm, they were put face to face with the terrifying omnipotence of a holy God and they were exceedingly afraid of him. They were fearful, which is good because Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So where they're at, um, this exceeding fear is a great place for these sailors to be because instead of rejecting God's word like Jonah, they're doing everything they possibly can to submit to God's will. Look at verse 11, that's a great question. What shall we do? Their fear had led to a willingness to obey. Like an army being surrounded saying, I surrender, I'll do whatever you want. They knew that they were on the brink of destruction. So they were willing to do whatever God wants. What do we need to do to stop this storm? This is the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom and life. And as this is going on, the problem just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Look at that, verse 11. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So what is Jonah's answer to that question? What shall I do to you? Look at verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah admits this storm is because of him and he brings the solution. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Jonah's confident that this will solve the problem completely because Jonah knows that this storm is God's judgment against him. Jonah's fully convinced that his fleeing from the presence of the Lord has fully failed. That's why he says, For I know it is because of me. Now, here's the situation this was not Jonah's only option, is it? The storm's raging, and they say, what do we need to do, Jonah? What does Jonah say? Pick me up, throw me into the sea. A.K.A., kill me. I mean, that's an option. But, you know, he could have probably said, take me back to Joppa. I'm going to go to Nineveh and preach against their sin. And I'm guessing at that moment, that, that repentance, the storm would have stopped immediately. But that wasn't Jonah's solution. No, Jonah said, hurl me into the sea. 
In other words, Jonah saying, I'd rather die than repent. I'd rather die than obey. I think of Ezekiel 33, 10-11 that says, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Jonah, what do we need to do, Jonah? Jonah says, just let me die. Not God's will here. God says, why don't you turn? Why don't you repent? Why would you choose death? Repentance is to change your mind in such a way that you change your life. It's to turn from your sin, to turn towards Jesus. Repentance is to feel sorrow for your sin, to forsake your sin, and then commit to live under the authority of Jesus Christ. So my question to you today is why would you rather die than repent? Because there's some people in here, when I talked about being a Christian in name only, you knew that was true of you. But you'd rather die in your sins than repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Why would you rather face eternal hell than confess your sins? Because those are actually the two choices that you have set before you. Just like Jonah. Jonah had the choice, repent of your sins, turn back, or die. That's your choice too. Repent of your sins or die. Jonah chooses death. Jonah would rather be thrown into the sea than obey God's command to preach to Nineveh. So how do the sailors respond? Verse 13, Nevertheless, it's amazing, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. The sailors understand Jonah's solution, but they don't accept it. The prophet of God ironically works so hard not to save the Ninevites, but these unbelieving pagan sailors do everything they can to save the prophet of God. Why is this? It could be love of neighbor, but most likely it's out of this exceedingly great fear of the Lord. I mean, they don't want to have the prophet of the Lord's blood on their hands. Which makes sense when you witness this storm, right? You don't want to make this guy angry. Um, They've seen what this guy can do. They don't want to upset him at all. So they exhaust every method possible. They row hard to get to land, but the storm just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Human effort is going to bring no salvation here. So to cover their bases, they call out to the Lord to make sure this is what he wants. They pray um, while Jonah still hasn't prayed. And this time they're even praying to the true God of the Bible. And they're like, God, um, don't hold us accountable for this. Um, This is what we think you want to happen. We've done all that we can do. And then they throw them into the sea. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. We see a physical salvation here. Jonah's plan worked. Just like Jonah thought it would. They hurled him into the sea. Just like God hurled the storm. Just like the sailors hurled the cargo. And the sea immediately stopped its raging. I mean, this would be truly an incredible moment. Think about that terrifying storm that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, Tempestuous, tempestuous, tempestuous. And then all of a sudden they throw them in and then boom, complete calm. I mean, you'd be telling this story for the rest of your life, right? Nothing short of a miracle. And the sailors had to think, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I mean, they had to think, who could do this except... The God of heaven. 
who made the sea and the dry land. Do you see that? Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And that they're utterly convinced this had to be the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And this reminds me of the gospel. You know, Jonah had sinned. God's wrath was against him in the storm. Jonah deserved the death penalty. So you throw Jonah in the sea and God's wrath satisfied. That reminds me of the bad news of the gospel. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And I'm here to tell you this morning that you deserve to be thrown into the sea of God's wrath. Did you know that? You do deserve that. You're just like Jonah, rejecting God's word, fleeing from God's presence. God's wrath is against you and you deserve to die. But the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ is that instead of you being thrown into the sea of God's wrath, Jesus threw himself in as your substitute. Jesus fully satisfied the wrath of God for your sins on the cross. And he died for you as you. So that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the storm of God's wrath ceases from its raging and becomes forever calm. Beautiful. It's just a picture of the gospel. But we also see a spiritual salvation in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These sailors were confronted with the holiness of God, the power of God, the wrath of God, and the salvation of God, and they were forever committed to worshiping this God. They feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice. They made vows. Um, there's some doubt in the commentaries of whether this was a true conversion, but, I mean, this seems genuine to me, um, that these vows would be a sense of permanent worship and obedience. This isn't just an emotional thing. This is permanent life change. And also I think we see the sincerity of this conversion because this happens after the deliverance, not preceding it. You know, if they're like, God, I'm going to serve you, and then they get saved, you can kind of doubt that because they're just saying it's a foxhole conversion. This is after their deliverance. They're saying, God, we're going to serve you, we're going to worship you. Seems genuine to me. So the irony of this story is that Jonah bought a ticket on this boat to prevent unbelievers being saved. But God used this situation, even a bad situation of a storm, for his glory and the salvation of pagan people. Now in conclusion, this whole story, this whole narrative should remind you of Mark chapter 4. You'll turn your Bibles there, 35 through 41 in Mark chapter 4. Starting in verse 35, it says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Jesus goes into a boat there's a great storm the boat's being swamped Jesus is asleep in the bottom Jesus is woken up by the other people on the boat they're terrified thinking that they were about to die and they are asking the prophet of God how could they possibly be saved but instead of Jesus asking to be thrown into the sea Jesus wakes up and rebukes the storm Jesus screams at a storm and somehow this works 
There's a great calm immediately at the word of Jesus. And what did the disciples say? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The answer to that question we clearly know through the authority of the scriptures is that Jesus Christ in the flesh is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The God that calmed the storm in Jonah is the same God, Jesus Christ, who calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4. And this is the God that we worship. The God who sends storms and can calm storms. The God who is completely sovereign over the heavens and the roll of a dice. God gets his way. Do you see that? So don't run, don't rebel, don't flee, don't be like Jonah, but gladly submit to this sovereign God and trust him with your life. So in conclusion, you can do this the easy way or the hard way. Jonah chose the hard way, but God still got his way. In your life, you can choose the easy way or the hard way, but God's still going to get his way in your life. So choose the easy way of submission. Choose the easy way of obedience. Choose the easy way of delighting in God's word. You know, God's going to get his way in Jonah's life and your life, but God's also going to get his way in the entire universe. You know that? Uh, Every single person, not one single exception. Philippians 2, chapter 10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And everybody's going to do that, bend their knee to Jesus and confess Him to be God. And it's either going to be the easy way or the hard way. So submit to Him now, repent to Him now, gladly, and receive salvation from Him. Let's pray and go to that God in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of Jonah. God, I pray um, for fake Christians in this room that you can draw them to repentance. God, I pray for real Christians in this room that you can help us see your providence in everyday life. Uh, God, that we can trust you, that we can know that you're working all things um, for our good. God, I pray that um, we can see you, Jesus, as God. God, this story is so clear. The the, the parallels are amazing. God, I I pray that you can increase our our trust and love and the beauty and truthfulness of Scripture and and your sovereignty, God, that you orchestrated this Jonah story to happen like this and then you orchestrated Jesus' story to happen like that, to mirror each other, to show us that the God who calmed the storm in both of those is Jesus Christ. God, thank you for that. God, I pray uh, that you can produce in us obedience, God, that, that you can search our hearts and try our hearts and see if there's any grievous way in us. God, that as we sing this song, that this can be a time of reflection and confession. Um, and God, I, I, I pray that um, you can be glorified in this room. In your name, Jesus, amen.